All right, guys, welcome back to Within Tolerance. This is episode 11, and it's just Dylan and I. And today we're just going to be talking about job shop life, and we're also going to be talking about some brass parts that I'm working on. Dylan got really busy all of a sudden, and kind of funny story there. And just a couple other things. So, Dylan, how is everything going on your end? It's going well. So we started, you know, little maintenance items and all that stuff. And then this last weekend, Friday night, I figured, oh, I might as well reach out to some customers. Um, it's always a good idea to, you know, touch base. And so I found out that you can schedule emails through Gmail, which is what our email is all based on. And so I scheduled a whole bunch for Monday morning at 8 a.m. and sent a you know a little checking in email to all of our customers that just said that you know we had some open machine time and if there's any projects we can help out with to let me know. And uh, of course we went from famine to feast, and most of our customers wrote back and either placed orders or RFQs. And uh, now I've got some work due Friday. That's real quick turnaround. I've got some work Tuesday. I've got some more parts that I need to quote that are due next week. Um, so lots, lots to do now, which is fantastic. That's awesome. And you were telling me off air, a lot of these are just one-offs. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of our bread and butter, you know, one-off aluminum prototypes. Um, maybe from what I saw, most of them are between two and four ops, nothing terribly hard. Like, I don't know. There's a couple that are longer reach with like a 16th inch end mill that I longer than I'd like to do with a you know tinier tool like that but not a terrible thing either i think it's only one or two parts that have that so not the worst in the world that's not bad especially in aluminum at least that's good yeah yeah exactly and uh you know msc overnight upgrade for the win to get them here in time oh yeah did you already order the tooling yeah i, I had it all queued up yesterday when i was talking to them um because like i told you off air they, they wanted them even earlier then Friday and uh, I didn't think I could get tools, get the parts made and get them shipped so that they were delivered by when they wanted. So uh, I, I told them when I could make it and it all worked out. And so, yeah, tools are on their way. They'll be here tomorrow. And unfortunately I missed the cutoff yesterday. I was like really trying to help, trying to get a place before six, but I missed it by, I don't know, 20 minutes or something. Oh shoot. That's okay though. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all work out. Nothing's terribly hard. Uh, Parts are fairly easy. The, the only, not really a snag, like Brad's going to go take care of the coolant tomorrow, but we had been kind of letting our coolant and our kitty evaporate because we're supposed uh -huh. to be doing a full clean out of that machine and a full clean out of the brother and going 100% synergy here in like the next week or so. Okay. Um, just mainly like I, th I think I had said in another podcast, mainly because of all the carry off from the brother is contaminating the sump on the kitty and... So like just having a consistent coolant between the two of them will be really nice. Like every time I switch jaws between the machines or vices or anything like that, I always have to really heavily clean them, which is not a, a bad thing, but I'll, I'll just be able to wipe them down between machines now and they'll both be synergy and it'll just be more consistent. So as far as carry off, does it really like that little amount over time, did it really affect it that much? I don't think it was a hundred percent that but I, I think it definitely affected a little bit i mean we don't we don't have a top to the brother so it's like all oh, of the mist true. is just carrying over to the kitty now would you ever run like op one and like the brother or the kitamura and then like vice versa op two and like switch you know the parts but you know what i'm saying oh yeah 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 i mean we've been doing that quite a bit 
Okay, that might be. I guess that's carry off. But then again, you blow stuff off normally. Yeah, but I mean, even then, there's still oils on the surface, and like we try to blow them off or wipe them down between machines if we're going to do that. But you know, you there's always that trade off of like, well, am I actually going to sit here and clean the entire part for op one to like put it into op two? No. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. It's it. There's. It's not the only contaminant I think that we've had in the kitty, but it's it certainly hasn't helped. Yeah. Now, with the parts you got, all the one-offs and whatnot, do you said like two to four ops. Is there a lot of soft jaws or custom fixtures involved, or are these, you know, do you have flat surfaces to just grab onto? Uh, about 50-50. Okay. So, like, I think 50% of them I'll make soft jaws for, and the other 50 are more or less square. Now, do you use the car smart system as far as, like, soft jaws go? Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't... I haven't bought or made soft jaws in two years now. Okay. Maybe over that. So do you buy just the extrusion from like Mari tool or car smart and then just cut it? Yeah. Yeah. We buy the 31 inch sticks cause it's the most economical to ship. They, they also yeah. have like the longer ones than that, but the, that gets a little unwieldy. So yeah, we buy a few sticks of the 31 inch stuff and, and a fair, a few different profiles, like obviously the flippable stuff is yep. what we buy the most of just because you get the most life out of it. But, um, I also like the two inch thick stuff. I like the one that's an inch and a half tall, I think, or two inches tall, something like that for larger parts. So yeah. we, we try to keep enough in stock that we're set for whatever comes through our doors. Okay. Yeah. I needed some really tall soft jaws for those castings a while ago. And the flippable, I had some of that flippable car smarts, but it was just too low against device. It wouldn't work. I needed enough clearance for the tool to lead in and lead out for the keyway cutter. Luckily, I had some old like Kurt soft jaws from school and I was able to repurpose those. And I've never actually done that on the orange vice was to flip the back jaw and the front jaw. So you have that, what is it? Half 13 bolt pattern. Oh, yeah. But it worked pretty good, so yeah, yeah, it works pretty well. I've also used the carve smarts, like flip the jaws and put the carve smarts on the outside to hold it larger stock. Okay, which I don't think is great because you're kind of fighting against the dovetail. But for what we had, it was kind of the only thing I could do. That's smart. I never thought about doing that. Yeah, it works. Yeah, um, that's cool. But yeah, we got that, and then I just got in the adapter plate for the uh mistaway so probably okay. once we wrap up all the orders mid next week maybe next weekend we'll cut the hole and get that thing mounted up on the kitty now make sure that scheduled email isn't set to every monday it sends it out <laughs> oh man that would be funny <laughs> yeah but no I, I think we're i think i've heard from everybody i sent an email to maybe one or two people haven't responded yet but or we're, have we're they all good. replied saying like we've got stuff or is it kind of like oh we'll let you know or some of them obviously said we do anybody who's replied so far has either given me an order right away or given me an rfq and uh, oh wow yeah like the the grills that i make we got another order of those um and thankfully chris from performance sst performance stainless steel he had a uh vpu vacuum power unit from pearson that he's sending out so we can try it out and we're gonna make a little quick test fixture to run a few of those grills on and if that works out it'll save us a lot of time and money in the glue method 
because that thing that'll is, be interesting. Yeah, I think it's going to work great. Like I, I did the calculations. I've got like 500 pounds of holding force. Okay. The, like even despite taking out that much of the grill, like it's it's just that big that there's still a fair bit of surface area left. Yeah, that should be plenty. Yeah. So I'm going to do that and a few screws that'll go down first just to hold the uh, outside after it's cut off. Okay. And then the rest will be all vacuum and should hold on real tight and knock it out. And I'll be able to change parts in like, you know, 10 seconds rather than 10 minutes. Yeah. That's just a pain to have to wait for the glue to dry and all that. Yeah. I mean the glue, like the glue dries in about three minutes, if not a little less with the accelerator. But when I pull a part off, then I have to pull all of the tape and because it gets slotted so many times it's like a million little pieces oh and so yeah. i have to like clear the entire thing of of tape and glue and then i stone the entire thing and then i clean it with acetone and then i let the acetone evaporate off and then i retape the entire thing and have to cut it to fit the track of the grill and then i glue everything down and let it sit for a couple minutes with a spare vice body on top of it and then it's ready to run and it's like man this is more pain than it's worth so yeah i mean that is your cycle time right there oh yeah yeah i think it takes it either takes as long or slightly more to change parts as it does to run apart yeah and that's one thing i've learned you really got to figure is like okay you know if this is a six op part you got to figure it's going to take you a solid minute to flip it you know to blow it off open the door all that stuff adds up really quick yeah yeah, it definitely does. And then like, even while the next one's running, I still have to then peel all the tape off of the other one and usually deeper the backside. And yeah, it's, it's just a vacuum fixture will make it so much quicker, so much more, uh, just like profitable. <laughs> like right now, yeah. I, I, I haven't really done the math, but I we're probably maybe making a few dollars a grill. And if that, so yeah you need to if you get that and it works which i see no reason it wouldn't work i would try to build depending on how much material it is build up inventory if you're you know slow enough on the work side that you can afford to have the machine you know set up for that for a day or two oh yeah yeah well we're gonna build so instead of buying the pearson full uh plate that they sell as well we're going to turn the current pallet that is like the Delta pallet for the orange. We're going to turn that part of it into the base of the vacuum fixture and drill and tap the, I think it's eighth MPT holes in it and pocket it out as like a vacuum reservoir. Okay. And then we're going to glue a top down to it or uh, RTV it or something. We'll, we'll figure out whatever is best. Uh, and then cut the uh, more or less like the checkerboard pattern that's in the top of their plates in the top of that and then make removable pinnable uh pallets like he has but specifically for the grill sizes that we have are there multiple sizes of those grills or is it just the one big one no so we we make four oh wow grills i want to say i thought it was just the one. Oh yeah no it's, it's like because it, it, there's like a bunch of different grills on this car. So it's it's like the side grills and the wiper grills and the hood vents and a few different styles of each one. Okay. So, it, uh, yeah. 
And because like the, what's the only nice, well, the nice thing about the glue method is that it's part shape agnostic. So like I can put a right or a left on there. I can put one with the one kind of holes or one with the other kind of holes on there. Like it doesn't matter because it's just glue. Whereas with vacuum, I'm going to have to have a specific track for each style of grill. Yeah, which is fine. It's just a little more work up yeah, front. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not a big deal at all. Yeah, I would definitely get all that. I, that system sounds good because it's kind of like a little modular, you know, vacuum system. If you could get that working and then just build up a decent amount of parts, why not, right? Yeah, Oh, to- totally. I mean, the, the stock is relatively cheap. Um, we should be able to make the rest of the vacuum fixture stuff with stuff from like the remnants room or yeah, remnants room and uh, IMS. So it should be okay. also relatively cheap. I think the only thing I need to buy is uh, gasket material. And I think that's it. Is that just like O-ring stock? Yeah, more, more or, or less. less. Like I, I think Pearson has it on their website, so I'm just going to buy it from them. Okay. Um, and then if everything works out, I'll have to buy the vacuum power unit and the connection kit once when I send this one back to Chris. But for now, like, you know, for a little while, it gives us time to R&D it, make sure that it works and not spend all that money up front. So I really appreciate him reaching out so is that just the like the actual like manifold for the vacuum that you're getting yeah so it's the little box looking thing that you yeah. run um you run air into it and it, it creates vacuum okay it's like super low uh amount of air needed too i can't remember what it is off the top of my head but i was looking at it yesterday the day before and i I cannot believe that they can create that much vacuum with as little air as they require. It's like one CFM, I think, for full, a full 14 pounds of vacuum. Whoa. Yeah. So it, it's because like we are already having limitations with our compressor. So we were a little wary about going to a system like that. But at one CFM, I mean, that's like if I fix a couple leaks around the shop. like Yeah, really? <laughs> it'll be the same. So I'm yeah. not too worried about it. Yeah, that's something to consider, but that's nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's a, so yeah, it's between 0.8 and one CFM for max vacuum, which is like yeah, that, absolutely nothing. that's impressive. Yeah, so that's really uh, cool. So yeah, that was a a good thing that came out, and then uh, the other thing is, uh, as I posted on Instagram, we had uh, Brett come by last Friday with the robot and show us and demo that and demo a vision system as well and. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. So for those listening, Dylan sent me a picture just of a robot. He didn't say anything. And I don't know if that was on purpose or. Oh, of course. Uh, it was. Yeah. And I was like, I was like sitting in my car at the time and I'm like looking at this and I'm like, first of all, is this his? Do I feel jealous right now? What do I feel right now? And so go ahead and tell the story. But this is really cool. Yeah, so Brett, um, I'd have to find the company name, but they, his engineering manager found us through the podcast, and they so he contacted us, and we kind of got to know each other. It's uh, in, possession, in Position Technologies. They're an automation solution company. And uh, so he came by a couple weeks ago and kind of just showed us his catalog and found out about my shop, and we chatted, and it turned out that he's the you are dealer for my re- region and I, you know, expressed interest and 
he said, Oh, I'll, I'll bring by one and we can demo it. And I was like, listen, like, I don't want to lead you on. I'm not like in the near future in the market for a robot. Um, and he said, Oh, don't even worry about it. I take this as a, like a long-term sale. You know, even if you don't, you, you at least know the knowledge and you can recommend it or not to somebody else. And so I was impressed by that right off the bat. And then last Friday, he brought by a UR3E, which is the, the E is the new model that they're, you know, selling now and uh, set it up and we got to play around with it. And, you know, first thing he did, because we were asking about the safety is he had it uh, kind of punched towards the table and stopped like an inch away and just keep looping that. And he was like, all right, now put your hand in there. It's like. Okay. Um, okay. He, he did it first and was like, see, and it stops. And then it's like, well, can I do it? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then I, I did it. And it like, you know, you feel it. Like it, it's definitely like a robot that's moving, but it Yeah, it you don't want to sit there all day and have it do that. Right, right. But it, it it didn't really hurt and it wasn't a big deal. And it stopped immediately and aired out. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And uh, the thing he said is like, I didn't want to have it like swinging and hit you, he said, because most people, you know, if you get hit by something that's moving, you just like move with it and kind of stumble away from it. And he's like, I, yeah. I, I get people all the time that are like, my robot hit me and I did, it didn't stop. And it's like, well, your robot glanced you and didn't stop because it didn't detect like a full hard stop. Like, you know, <laughs> and like you can set up those limits and, and make it less or more sensitive to that. But it, it made sense. And when you see it up close, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, like, why would it? Why would it stop if it hits something that feels like a curtain to it? You know? Yeah. He's like, it's still, it can still be dangerous. Like if you're using your robot to move hypodermic needles around, like it, it'll still stab you before yeah. it realizes that something's there. So you, you still got to have common sense and not be dumb, but it's significantly safer than like a full industrial robot for sure. Yeah. That, so I guess the question is if you had the option to get a, new spindle or a robot what would you do so that's kind of the the question now um i if i could find a decent production style order like a contract or even a customer that just gave me i don't know 40 or 50 of a part that that were very similar a, a family of parts i would get a robot i think or like get a robot no. and a use spindle or, you know, something yeah. like that. Because so I guess the question, oh, sorry to cut you off. Dave. No, no. Um, I was just going to say like, it's, it's, it's so simple to set up and so simple. Like that, that was the main thing I came away with is I was programming it within, you know, 20 minutes. I was able to start moving it around and add waypoints and play around with the palletizing feature and all kinds of stuff. And it, it's just, it's so dead simple that if you put the, the other things in place, like if you, the thing that him and I had talked about was having like a cart with casters that could come up and drop the whole cart down onto like conical seats in front of each machine. And then you could just reteach the robot a global variable like, oh, this is where my vice is, or this is where, you know, if you use a like a zero point system or something, like here's my zero point, it would know where the rest of the program goes. And so I could like pick up stock and load stock and, all of that with very little reteaching of the robot. So with getting that, you'd have to get some sort of pneumatic or hydraulic work holding of some kind. Yeah, definitely. And I guess my question, because I've looked into those too, is 
you probably have to get like the UR10, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, right now I don't have any parts for it, so I, yeah. I, I don't, but like I, as a job shop, it wouldn't make much sense to go anything less than a 10. I mean, there, there's yeah. nothing more than a 10 either, but like the 10 holds up to 22 pounds. It That kind of just would cover the entire span of any kind of fixturing plus material that I wanted to load in the machine with a robot. I thought there was a 15. I thought there was three models. So there's the three, five, and 10. Three, five, and 10. Okay. Yeah. I meant, so, yeah. So then I guess a five or a 10, depending yeah. on what you're wanting to do. For the, the price difference, so like, it, I don't know. If, if you're making that kind of investment, I, I feel like it would make the most sense. It, unless I had a specific job that fell within the weight limits of the five, if I was just buying it as a general purpose robot to set up quickly and run on any parts, I would get the 10. Yeah. That that's what made the most sense. But it was just it was insanely user-friendly, so quick to set up, so quick to use um like the UR caps, which is like how it's more or less apps for the robot and it's how all of your peripherals plug into it. it it's just so quick to set up on one of those like the gripper that he had brought was a uh not a shunk, but a Robotique one and it's an electric gripper and like you just plug it in and plug in a USB dongle and it all works. That seems like they've really nailed down the seamless or streamlined, you know, kind of nature. Oh yeah. Yeah. And like the, the gripper, it knew percentage wise how open or closed it was. So it could error out if it grabbed like the wrong size of stock, it could grab with variable force and speed um it has like force sensing in the joint the wrist joint so it didn't really matter where you picked up stock from you could like push it against the side of your vice and say okay now you know where the edge of the stock is go put that edge up against the, the stop of, in my vice huh so it's it's super intelligent just like it, it's all a python back end to the, the programming too so it's really powerful as far as like if then statements go and um, using a variety of math and inputs and, and all of that stuff. Like it, it's really as much time as you want to put into the programming is as much functionality as you can get out of it. Yeah. I I've thought about getting one, you know, everyone I feel like is trying to find an excuse to get one. Cause I think <laughs> after seeing Danny, you know, run his shop, they're so cool. And it's just like, I want one. Right. Yeah. And it'd be so cool. Cause on my semi-automatic injection molding machine, the one where I manually have to press two buttons at a time, take the mold out, open the mold, take the part out, and reverse the process every time. It'd be nice to have a robot sitting there that I'm just opening the mold and removing parts. Then I close the mold, set the mold down on you know a tray. It picks it up and does the rest. And then I can keep you know clipping parts or you know doing whatever while it does you know the rest of it. Oh yeah. I mean, it could do most of all of that. It sounds like like the, he yeah. was even talking about people using it for deburring after parts come out of the machine, because since it's force sensitive, you could push a part into a red wheel with a certain amount of force. So you're not like radiusing off the edge of the part, but you're getting it just enough to like break all the, the burrs and drop it back in the bucket or whatever. Yeah, that, yeah. But, so I guess the other question is in the next, year or two or I actually do you see yourself getting a machine or a robot 
I, we kind of already touched on that, but which one do you honestly think would come next? It, it really depends on the mix of work that comes next. Like I'm, I won't, I don't, I don't want to say that I won't actively shy away from production. Like, but, cause I, I would never have shied away from production, but like if I see more production work come up, I will, I'm more likely to actively look for production work to afford a robot at this point. Okay. Cause it, it, uh, similar to like what Dan said, like once you have it in your shop and you've bought it for a certain reason, like now it opens up all these other doors. Um, and, and both, and Brett said that too, when he brought it by, he said he sees a lot of shops afford one by getting a certain job. And then either that job goes away or they realize how much use they're getting out of the robot and they buy another one for just general purpose use. Yeah. I think it's kind of now you have a different mindset of looking at jobs Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and like, it would take a significant more investment besides just the robot. Cause like you said, I would want air vices in every machine. And at that point I would probably want like a fifth axis or uh laying, you know, zero point system because then it makes it just that much easier to reteach the robot where it is. Yeah. Um, but I, I think once you get like a system like that in place, automating, most of my parts that are that come from you know generic bar stock like switching between a program that uses a two inch blank versus a one and a half inch blank would be i don't know an hour maybe yeah like it it doesn't once everything's all set up i i don't think that it the utility would go down on smaller lots like i think i could run it with a a 40 piece lot or a 50 piece lot and if as long as i had all that stuff already paid for like it it would make sense and i could go and run the other machine while the robot tended to that i guess i can easily see a robot running like op ones and depending on the op two if it's like you know square sides and you can just use you know smooth jaws but anything other than that i mean it really depends on the part if you had some really complex like 3d contour soft jaws i wouldn't trust it i mean it it I can't remember the repeatability right off the top of my head, but it re- repeated within like five or 10 microns. So it, it's more accurate than you'll ever be. Yeah. As far as placing a part. I guess another thing you'd probably have to get is like, I've been thinking about this a lot with these coasters I'm running today is some sort of like fan to go in your machine. Problem is with my machine, none of the fans on the market fit my tool changer. They're too long. Oh, really? Yeah. Even the big Kaiser one? I'd have to check, but I have a two and a half inch max diameter and like a seven inch max gauge length. Hmm. So, but something like that, you'd need to blow off everything for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can add, I've seen quite a few people add air nozzles to the end effector on the robot too. So it'll come in and blow it off like you would a normal, like a person would. And then goes and grabs it and switches it out and all that yeah it's definitely something to think about i think those robots especially ur has done such a good job they're just going to keep getting better and better and hopefully someone will come along and maybe give them a run for their money so the price will drop yeah i mean it seems like a lot of companies are trying to get into that cobot space um but yeah ur just has such a good foothold on it that it, it would take something really special, I think, to disrupt their 
their market. Yeah, I just remember when I got some quoted. Let's see. So that you said this the three, the five, and the ten. Mm-hmm. I think it was like, I want to say it was the five. The middle range one was like twenty two thousand or something. I think the new ones a little bit more than that, even. Okay. So because um, like it, they all come from Denmark too. So there's import fees. Oh and, geez. Um, yeah, things like that. Okay, but I mean. The classic argument is you de- if you can have the robot busy, you know, you do, let's say for talking purposes, $30,000 divided by 2000 hours, you know, it starts to pay for itself pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Well, and especially if you weigh it against like hiring a person. Yeah. Like you, you talk about hiring a person for like, what, $18 an hour, $20 an hour, and that's 40 something thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Plus, that's not even including, that's just like straight wage. That's not including your side of the taxes for them, any kind of benefits, workers' comp, days off, all of that and stuff. And dealing with them. <laughs> right, yeah, and finding a person, exactly. Yeah. Um, like Tucson around here has, a, from what I've seen at least, I won't say that there's not other good machinists out there, but like they're either really happy in their jobs, and so they're going to be super expensive to hire away, or the other people are not good. Okay. So it, it would just be, it makes so much more sense. It's like if I'm going to hire a person, but I've got the work that could support a robot just as easily, like I'd much rather get a robot. Yeah. And I don't even think going back to what you just said about, you know, where you're at in Arizona, I don't think it's just Arizona. I mean, even here, I think just in general, it's hard to find good machinists that are, you know, happy with doing it, let alone, you know, willing to learn. Yeah. Sober or you know, yeah. things like that. <laughs> yeah, really. Seriously, though. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll just have to see what the future holds. But it is definitely, I, I was very single-mindedly focused on getting a new machine and, like, moving the shop. And now it's like, well, if I could keep one machine working for 16 or 18 hours a day on a job, I mean, I'd have to have the right kind of work for it. But that would be awesome. I guess the other question is, let's say, okay, you have a robot, let's say, tending your brother, because I feel like that would make the most sense. Maybe not, but I think it would. No, I agree. Okay. For sure. Yeah, so you have the brother busy, let's say, most of the day, and you have the Kinemura to do whatever with. What do you do in that spare time? Because it, it almost goes back to now you only have one spindle. Uh, Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess in an ideal world, I'd get a second brother. Okay. Because like, I, I don't know. I, I think you can design processes that are fairly bulletproof, but like if I was going to have a robot run literally 18 hours a day, I would prefer to have on machine program. So I could ensure that those parts are still good. Ensure yeah. that my tools are still there. Uh, you know, things like that. So ideally I would get like a used mid two thousands brother with a probe and a robot and just have that okay. thing printing money while I use the other two machines to do, you know, custom one-offs and things like that. Yeah. It's just kind of that back to that conversation with Danny. It's like everyone wants one, but you got to find the work and that's kind of the tricky part. Yeah. Yeah. But it it has definitely lowered the bar of what that actually means to me. Like I definitely think if I had, like I said, if I had a customer that was giving me families of parts that were more or less similar or at least in the same general size and in stock and like they were repeating jobs i could i could see that as being enough of an incentive to get a robot 
Okay. Versus like before I was like, oh, well, I need an order for 10,000 units for it to make sense. Like now it, it's so easy to implement and so quick to, to use once you get it set up that I think that that bar has dropped significantly for me. Yeah. No, after you did that demo, I'm probably going to, whenever I get less busy, I'd like to do that because it sounds like they'll just do that for anyone. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I told you off air, like it's, it's worth finding out who your local dealer is. Uh, maybe he won't be as, as nice as they were, but I, I was really impressed by uh, Brett and I, I, I would, I would love to do business with them in the future. Like that, that's what I came away with. Cause he, he also brought a uh, structured light scanner, which does like all of the different projected lines to do a 3d scan of a, a, a sort of like two and a half D scan of a part. And you okay. can like use it to do go, no goes and quick and in, in process inspection checks and things like that. So like we, I pulled out a couple parts and you know, you place them under there and it flashes light real quick. And then you have a 3d or a top down sort of 3d model, like everything it can see from one, one area, it can pick up fairly accurately. And then you can set that as your master part and then, you know, keep putting parts under it and it'll tell you percentage wise, how close that is to the first part. And you can, you know, select areas and say, if this doesn't meet 90% criteria, tell me it's a reject. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty neat. Last thing I want to mention about the UR robots. Did you see at IMTS, I think it was the Herco booth, what they were doing? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sure if once you say it, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I can't Yeah, remember. they had like, I'm pretty sure it was a UR robot that was scanning people's faces. And then they were machining like brass coins with their faces on it. Oh, you know, I, I didn't spend enough time in the Herco booth. Like there was one, one machine that was hogging some serious stainless i think that i yeah. paid attention to but uh like they were just like swamped the entire time i was there so i didn't really spend much time there yeah i just remember me and nick saw that and we were like we want one of those but there was like a giant line and they had like a whole machine with a pallet system to make these coins i thought that was pretty cool yeah that's really cool that is really he actually used the ur to hold the light scanner i mean he wasn't like actively scanning with it but he's like well i've got a tripod right here yeah really <laughs> So it was, it was really cool. It was a great visit and I, I learned a lot and, uh, it was, yeah, it was super cool. That's awesome though. So what about you and your, uh, I've been watching your Instagram stories. It seems like there's been some heart heartache and a heartbreak, heartbreak and some lessons and, you know, all kinds of drama with these, uh, coasters. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why, but I was texting Dylan off air I was having an issue with the thickness. It was just like, at first it was cutting way too thin, like 30,000 thin. And then I realized, you know, I was like thinking, what could it be? And I checked Fusion and my model wasn't sitting where it should have been in the soft jaws. And it was like 15,000. I was able to clearly do the math and I was like, okay, this makes sense. And I was like, okay, repost. And then it was still 15,000 off. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I tried everything before I texted you and then I tried it again, basically retouch off my tool that was doing the facing op, the actual offset. I was checking for part lift or flex or anything like that. 
I just couldn't find anything. And I was like, all right, I think I went and got lunch or something. And then I came back. I'm like, I'm just going to repost and try again. And it worked. And I still, it's one of those weird things where it's like, you'd like to know what happened or what you were missing, but I don't know what it was. Yeah. Well, and like you, it didn't help that your model was like super laggy because of all of the lines. Yeah. So they have this like really intricate sketch. And I was talking with the customer. He came by the other day to see them running and he thinks it's because, you know, when fusion exports or import stuff, it makes like a mesh. And he's wondering if that sketch somehow messed up with that. But I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a fusion thing or if that was an actual file issue. Well, I know like really um, intensive sketches like that have locked up fusion for me in the past in a similar way. So like uh, I told you that day when you were first having that issue, if you make sure that the body is a component in fusion and copy the component and then paste as new in a new fusion file, it won't reference all of the sketches and everything every time you do like even the slightest change it'll just use that as a fresh component i I can't remember if you have to break the link or not um but i think rob lockwood talked about that in one of his videos a long time ago and was talking about uh different ways to get over fusion like because once you add a whole bunch of even components or parts or anything like that fusion starts bogging down a lot because it's just chugging through so many different calculations that if you can kind of separate it from its initial data, it'll, it'll, it'll work heaps better. Okay. So copy the actual like solid model. And then the sketches, if they're linked to that body, they'll come with it. Correct. Uh, it depends on how you do it. I'd have to go in and actually try it again, but I think, so you make the body a component. So you right click on it, say make or uh, create components from bodies then you copy the component, go into a new Fusion file, right-click and say paste new. Okay. And I believe, so it'll keep the sketches as part of the component, but I don't think it calculates them the same way. Maybe I'm doing that the wrong way. I, I, I have to find the file that I used it on, but there is a way to kind of break that off. And I think if you break the link, it won't go through everything. Yeah. Cause I mean, I can change the slightest thing and it just takes like a solid 20 seconds to update itself and it'll kind of freeze temporarily. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. That, Which I mean, is kind of annoying, but I tried I have... helping you out and it, I couldn't get it to open in my lunch break at all. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And what's annoying is I have a computer upstairs and downstairs by the machine and I had to have it open on the one upstairs simply because it's more powerful. It's just a newer PC, but every time I needed to change something, I have to run upstairs, repost, run back downstairs, but it's working now. So that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So those are running and let's see, I think I got close to 20 of them done. I'll probably do another, Let's see. It's about seven o'clock almost. So I'll probably do another five hours of those. Probably get a good amount of them done as much as I can, at least today. That's good. 
Yeah, so we'll I mean, see. You're, and then you're Monday, right along them with them, so that's good. Yeah, they're running good, so it's one of those things I'm not worried about cycle time. I just let it do its thing. Definitely where you would like another spindle, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot lately. <laughs> so besides that, what's, what else is going on in your world? Let's see. Waiting to hear back. I was telling you off air about that one customer. They basically, like this was, I think, not February. It was more like June. I did, I think it was five different part numbers. And it was like 30 of each. It was like 150 parts. And those were, I thought they were for production for these assemblies, but turns out they were for testing and they tested them, got approved because it's like an aerospace component and they got approved. And so they're doing just some slight iterations and changes and I'm going to get those drawings and files hopefully Monday. And then I don't know what their turnaround time is going to be like, but you know, I've done similar parts before, so it should be pretty easy. Awesome. Well, that's good. Yeah, so it'll be fun. I It'll just be aluminum and then Delrin again, which is fun to work with. Oh, are these the parts that were like super thin? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I think I got it nailed, though. I'm So I'm not... I'm hoping that they stick with the aluminum for that one part. <laughs> but, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. No, you, I mean, you worked through it pretty well last time. Yeah, I got it done, so... And the nice thing with that, those parts is, I mean, they're so small materials, like 50 cents or a dollar, you know, so I'll buy just a handful of extras just in case. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You might as well at that point. Yeah. And they're normally pretty good. I told them, I'm like, I always buy extras just in case. And they're like, well, we'll buy any extras you have. So whatever I scrap, I scrap and I put it on the cool parts shelf and whatever (laughs) extras I make, they'll buy. So... Yeah, that's awesome. I, I I appreciate when customers are like that. Yeah, so waiting to hear from them. Very cool. Well, we've got a uh, couple questions that rolled in on Instagram as well, if you want to run through those. Ooh, I'm not aware of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Sean from Nietzsche Products asked, uh, we've kind of discussed this before, but what are your guys' approach to quoting jobs, determining if you take deposits, what helps decide payment terms, and if they differ from customer to customer, or is there a standard that each of you follow? You want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So as far as my approach to quoting jobs, like that's as far as deposits or payment terms, I always, especially if it's a new customer, cash on delivery every time. And, and unless it's over, I don't know, if it feels like it's a risk on my end, uh, monetarily, like more than just, I don't know, you know, a hundred bucks in material or something like that, then I might ask for a deposit. Um, but for the most part, I cash on delivery unless otherwise negotiated. Um, and then, yeah, if it's like a super large order and I don't trust the source or I don't trust the company or I just, need some money up front for material and tooling, then that's kind of a job by job determination. But uh, yeah, I always try to both quoting lead time and payment terms. I always try to set us up with the absolute best and then negotiate from there. But I'm definitely not going to, you know, be like, oh yeah, we're net 60, like, or, you know, 90. Like I'm not going to try to shoot myself in the foot right off the bat. Yeah, I... Pretty similar approach. Definitely 
you know, what's the saying? Something like over promise or no. Under Something promise, like, over deliver. Exactly. Yeah. I try to do that. Like you said, set yourself up for success as best you can. And if you're early, you're early and you make them even more happy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, and, I mean, that's like a big tenant of my business is, or like that's one of the reasons that Brad and I started is that we got tired of working at shops that would over promise and under deliver every time and constantly just like, oh, well, this barely meets print and we're only two weeks late. So ship it. Like, yeah. you know, I, I hated that kind of stuff. I'd much rather be like, oh yeah, we will, you know, hit nominal if not like, or, you know, we'll, we'll hit like half of your specified surface finish, if not better, we're, we'll try to come in this quick, but aim for a few days early, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So as far as that goes, and then is, let's see, talk about payment, depending on the customer, like some of the customers I work with are like, I would say larger companies and they normally work on net 30, which sucks, but it kind of is what it is. So I'm not going to like haggle them on that. But like, for example, like smaller jobs, it's normally 50% up front and then 50%, you know, when they get the parts. Um, like you said, it's kind of a feel, you got to feel out the customer and if there's risk to it, you know, I'm not going to spend $1,500 on material and not have any money up front. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, so. and, and really like we've got quite a few customers that are net 30 as well, but like I'll always, that first RFQ that they send me before I know their payment terms, unless it's like in their RFQ email. I'll always say cash on delivery. And then like, you know, usually they'll email me back and say, oh, well, we usually only go net 30, blah, blah, blah. And like, I'll say, okay, yeah, net 30. Or if I like really don't want to wait for net 30, um, the other thing I'll do is I'll say cash on delivery or or I'll say net 30, but a 2% discount or 3% discount for net 10. And then I'll just factor that into my pricing. So I get the same amount of money. That's a smart way to do it. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes you look like you're given a discount, but really you expect them to take it and you expect to make the money. So yeah, you just quote a little bit high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 2% like on a lot of jobs, that's not going to make or break it. And if it does, then they have that option to not take that discount and to pay it net 30. And that's totally fine as well. Yeah. So yeah, it all works out. Any other questions? Yeah, and so we've got also one from Alan Braytech, AJ Braytech on Instagram. And he has a small machine shop that he's set up doing race car parts for chassis builders. And he wanted to know if we had any uh, input onto reaching out to get more work and being able to quote more work. So I guess, you know, how to find work in your area and kind of branch out from whatever your meat and potatoes is. Well, like Dylan said, you could kind of take what he did as far as he already had a customer base and basically followed up with them. But I mean, I've done this in the past is look up local engineering companies, machine shops or anything and either call them or email them and just let them know that you exist more or less. And if they have overflow or if they need any um, thing to get subbed out or, you know, if it's an engineering company, if they need prototyping done. I mean, the more that people know about you, the better, because no one's going to reach out to you if you're not saying anything type thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and like I was telling you earlier, um, I'm going to start going to the, there's an Arizona Tech Council, and like they have monthly or bi-monthly meetings and, and events, and you can find something like that in your your town, uh, you know, things that attract engineering and technology firms, and usually also appreciate having service providers like a machine shop to come to them. And so you like word of mouth and getting to talk to people is kind of your, your best advertising, like a, a, an ad that pops up in LinkedIn is only so good. Whereas like getting some FaceTime and really getting to show people your passion is what will win you work usually. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, that's I think all of the, within tolerance podcast make sure you follow us there feel free to comment on any posts or message us with questions and we'll be sure to answer them in the next episode yep well uh have a good one guys and we'll see you in the next one